0: going through Luke's Gospel actually since April of last year, but we've been going through it fairly slowly. I prefer to think of it as methodically uh, in 2018, and this year we've decided to pick up the pace a little bit. Praise God! We spent the last six weeks uh, jumping around chronologically and covering some of the uh, parables in Luke. Uh, which were actually really interesting, and I think they provided a good bridge to get us from the who Jesus is uh, of the opening chapters to the how Jesus loves of the deeper chapters in Luke, the later parts of his ministry. So, this morning we're starting a series called No Greater Love, and it's a little bit of a play on words because it is both no with a K, no greater love, um, that we should know the kind of love that Christ has for us. But it is also a reference to what Jesus said in John, that there is no greater love a man ha- than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And so this series is going to take us through Easter, and we're going to land on uh, some of the high points of Jesus' ministry that take us through his his death and resurrection. So Today we're going to be landing on a a monumental week in the life of Jesus, a week when many things were revealed. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, and I've printed out the, uh, the full text in your bulletin, but before we get there, I want to look back and remember how we got here, why this matters, and who we're talking about. So let's go all the way back. We're going to go all the way back. I'm going to use my mature voice this morning. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God... Well, let's just stop with God. In the beginning, God. Before he created, before time and space, which contemporary science tells us were made... At a certain point, probably at the same time, before he created time and space, before he created anything, God was. In Hebrew, God, in this case, in Genesis 1-1, is the word Elohim. Elohim is a plural word. It is the plural name of God, and it's used many times early in Genesis, but it's also used with a singular pronoun, he. He. Which is odd. It would be like saying, that guys. Do you know what I'm talking about? That guys. No, that is a singular. Guys would be a plural. So he God, he the God, but he is singular and God the word is plural. It's odd. It's almost like God is one, but God is also more than one at the same time. I digress. In the beginning, Elohim, God, this singular and plural God, he created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. He created people as the pinnacle of his creation. In his image, to be like him, to have authority, to be spiritual. If you wonder what it means to be made in the image of God, the the, the way that I think about it is, think about how everything else is made. Think about the molecular, sort of atomic level. We're made of, I'm made of the same thing as this podium. On a, on a molecular level, carbon and things like that, we're made of the same building blocks, but I am certainly not like this podium. But even animals, think of a squirrel, we're made of the same things but there is something special about people among all, out of all of God's creation we're made in his image we're made to be like him in a special way and God loved us we had a relationship with him he walked with us he talked with us he gave us authority over creation and he gave us rules well he just gave us one rule really don't eat from that tree but man, that tree. When an alternative came up, well, God had said, "If you eat of it, you will die." The issue was that there was this serpent, and when he presented an alternative, and we call this the this the devil. The serpent is is a representation of of Satan. When the devil gave us an alternative, our ancestors decided to follow the alternative instead. They knowingly broke God's rule. They brought an alternative into God's good, holy, beautiful creation. And what would you call an alternative to righteousness and holiness and perfection? Well, it's like what's a what's a dairy alternative? It's not dairy. Yeah, it's evil. Did you say it's evil? Yeah. What's a dairy alternative? Evil. (laughs) So, going all the way back to the beginning, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created. He created everything, and then he made people special. He gave us rules. He told us how to follow him, how to love him, how to be in a relationship with him, and his creation was perfect. When the devil presented an alternative way of looking at it, a way to not participate in the way that God created it, we said, okay, let's go ahead and try that. That tree looks pretty good. Let's try it. And we brought an alternative to God's holiness into the world. That's how the world became sinful. That's how the world became broken. The Bible says that they... Adam and Eve became aware of their nakedness. They became aware of the difference between good and evil. And they now had an inclination toward that alternative. Rather than trusting God and being loyal to him, rather than being faithful, they had an inclination to do the opposite. They had an inclination toward lust rather than holy love, toward violence rather than peace, toward pride rather than humility, toward greed Rather than charity and so on, we've seen those things in humanity since then, haven't we? Just turn on the news. We see that all over the place. But in the middle of God's, if you think of it like a, a um, think of it like a painting on a piece of glass, and God had painted and created this beautiful picture. When we brought something evil into it, it shattered. And think of a, this beautiful piece of glass that's got this painting on it. Now think of something smashing into it, and it shattered, and it fractured, and it split, and things moved, and you can sort of still see that it's beautiful, but now it's got all these gaps and spaces and things that don't exactly match. It left scars, on creation, It distorted and defiled the beautiful thing that God had made. But in the middle of that, in the middle of the world breaking, God made a promise. He said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the devil, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this promise... God promised to one day send a man, the offspring of a, of a woman, who would strike, who would fight the devil. In time, God put more details on that promise. This anointed one, uh, which in Hebrew is the word Messiah, in Greek it's the word Christ. So we have this really interesting issue where the Bible is, uh, largely Hebrew and Greek, and so sometimes we think of, uh, of the anointed one as the Messiah and sometimes as the Christ, but it's the same thing. They just come from different uh, origins, right? So one is Hebrew and one is Greek. But this anointed one, this promised Christ, Messiah, who would fight the devil one day, he would be a male coming from the line of Abraham, and he would be a blessing to the entire earth, to all the nations of the earth, because of Abraham's faithfulness. He would not only fight, but he would win. His victory would then be for the whole world, not just the Hebrews. He would come from David's line, He would preach good news and heal people, but also he would suffer. He would be rejected by his own. He would pay for sin, which biblically means death, because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, by the way, because the life that God created us to have, he gave us life to live with him, to honor him, to follow him. But in our brokenness, we don't honor him. And so we lose the right to the life that he gave us. He gave us life to honor him. When we dishonor him, we lose the right to that life, which is why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So the Messiah would pay for sin, which means die, and he would bring the kingdom of God. How could the Christ suffer and die, yet also defeat the devil? It's a mystery. Daniel's prophecy tells us that he would bring a new kind of kingdom and he would reign in that kingdom. Then, after 400 years of prophetic silence in Israel, John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And a young woman named Mary from the line of David was supernaturally given a child in her womb. Yes, that's weird. It sounds crazy, but God needed, it's hard to say that God needs anything, but God needed someone who was neutral to sin like Adam was, who wasn't a part of the brokenness. He needed someone who was neutral, who could be faithful, who had an opportunity to be faithful. So he, God, took on flesh as a baby outside of the sinful inheritance of man. Mary and Joseph were told by angels that their son would be the Savior, that he would save his people, so they named him Jesus. He would be not just a man, but he would be God among men. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. He would be the Prince of Peace and the Promised One who would finally defeat Satan and make a way to restore our relationship with God, which was broken in the garden, but he would also suffer and die. But that's not something you walk around telling everyone. Do you know what I'm talking about? Jesus grew up in a small town, Nazareth, sort of like Berlin to Albuquerque, sort of on the outskirts. There's maybe a sign for it on a road somewhere, but it's not a big deal. You know what I'm talking about? Am I wrong? Am I using a bad local reference, or is that okay? That's fine. You guys tracking with me right now? Okay. He grew up in a small town, Nazareth. He was a carpenter. He was the carpenter's son, who became a carpenter too. When he was 30, 30 years old, he heard that John the Baptist was preaching repentance at the Jordan. Jesus wanted to be baptized by him, so he went down to the river. And when he was in the water, God the Father opened the heavens and declared... This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. That's my boy. Think about it like this. Thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, the world was beautiful, and then it broke. And God, in the middle of it breaking, said, I have a plan for bringing it back. I have a plan to fix it. I will send somebody who will defeat the deceiver who will defeat satan he's going to make everything beautiful again he's going to be from abraham's family he will be from david's line he will preach good news he's going to restore the the creation and in doing so he's going to bring the kingdom of god to bear on 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 the on the earth And we have these promises, we have these promises, and then all of a sudden, it's been quiet for a while, 400 years, and then all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes and says it's happening. The kingdom of God is at hand, and Jesus is born, and Jesus goes out to be baptized to repent in the river with John, and God opens up the skies, and the Holy Spirit descends bodily on Jesus. And God says, that's my son, that's my boy, and I'm so proud of him. That day, in that moment, Elohim was in the river. Do you understand that? The plural God of creation, the creator, the father, the son, and the spirit, with the son in the water the Holy Spirit coming out of the clouds and God speaking from the heavens. The people there experienced Elohim who created something beautiful and now is recreating it. He's now beginning to establish his kingdom on the earth and his plan to fix all the brokenness in the world is beginning. So Jesus goes from the river out into the wilderness to fight the devil. But what's different now? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit now. He goes out into the wilderness. The devil tries to tempt him, gives it his best shot, actually his three best shots, and Jesus proves faithful every time. Though he was tempted, he proved himself faithful, and he defeated Satan right then and there. Guys, Jesus defeated Satan already. He's already been defeated. So you might be thinking, well then, what's, what's up? <laughs> then Why all of this? Why, why is there still sin in the world? Why isn't it beautiful again? And the best way that I could think to, to explain this is by talking about the Lakers. because I love the Lakers, but they've been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. They still have games to play, but they lost. That's like what's happening with Satan. He's still got games to play, but he's already been eliminated. He's already been mathematically, he can't come back from this. Does that make sense? Go Lakers. After his victory over the devil, Jesus went on a ministry tear, and all of these people are gathering around him. All of these people are following him, and he's got a sort of balance between um, his ministry and the fact that everyone wants to kill him. So he's got all of his people who are following him. He's preaching good news. He's reframing what we should value. He's healing people, performing other miracles. He's got answers for every question. He's got questions for every question. It's like Jesus' favorite thing to do is just ask a question after they ask him a question. He's expanding the law. He's making the religious hypocrites mad. And he's talking about what the kingdom of God is like. He's talking about what God is like. He's forgiving people of their sins and he's explaining to them salvation. And he's got thousands and thousands of people who are following him around, but guess what he's not saying? He's not telling them that he's the Christ. Why? Because they kill him. Rome would have killed him like that. If if he walked around saying I'm the Christ, the king, I'm I'm the king of the Jews. No. No, you've got to you've got to follow you've got to follow Caesar. Calling himself Christ would have meant that he's a revolutionary, and they would have killed him. So he's not saying I'm the anointed one. But he is. He's been trying to balance this desire to be low-key with the reality that his message is for everyone. He can't just keep it quiet. So he's telling everyone about the kingdom. He's preaching good news. He's talking about salvation. He's forgiving sins. He's just not talking about himself very much. Did you ever notice that about Jesus? He's not talking a lot about himself. He calls himself the son of man. It's a little bit cryptic. He doesn't do it that much, but he's not calling himself the Christ. He allows the crowds to follow him, but then every now and then Jesus separated himself from the crowds, preferring to be by himself or just with his disciples, and our passage this morning is during one of those times. He had just fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and and some fish. A big miracle with a huge crowd, he withdrew from that crowd for some quiet time with his disciples. And we're going to begin reading in Luke Chapter 9, verse 18. So uh, grab your bulletin, or if you want to follow along in your Bible, grab your Bible, and we'll follow along together. Verse 18 says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he, that's Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one this saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day day be raised. Take a minute and appreciate what this means, that Jesus is the Christ. It means that God, for all of human eternity, for all of human history, has made a promise to one day send someone who will fix all the brokenness that we live in. One day I'll send someone who will fix it. One day. That promise gets developed over time, but it's still something to look forward to, right? Well, one day, one day. One day we'll do this. One day I'll do this for you. Think about the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were waiting, hoping that that day would be would fall in their lifetime. Where God was going to fix the brokenness of the of the world. So so much had happened. Uh, Israel had, 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 had come up Israel had split the, the, the northern kingdom was lost the southern kingdom was lost they were in exile all of these things all of these things were going on and people the whole time were praying crying out God is today the day that you will send your anointed one to save us and to fix this mess have you ever wondered have you ever wanted God to just fix the mess that we live in For thousands of years, they've been waiting for God to send the one. Think about the matrix, right? Neo in the matrix, he's the one. There is only one person who can fix the mess that they're in. In the Bible, Jesus is the one. He's the only way that God has designed for the mess to be fixed. And here he is. They've been following him and they've been following him and he's been teaching and they've been following him and he says he does this big miracle and then he says who do they think just did that Hey guys he's got his 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 followers his close followers with him he says who do they think that I am I mean doing these miracles and I'm and I'm preaching and they're they're listening to me and they're gladly taking the healing that I provide and the, the feeding but who do they think that I am? Elijah, you know, Elijah's a good one. But John the Baptist, John the Baptist to me, and that's a horrible answer because John the Baptist is actually alive at the same time in just another place, right? So it's like, they think I'm John the Baptist? What, they think John the Baptist is a magician? He's just appearing in two different places at the same time? That's sort of a crazy answer, but they're just reaching. Do you understand that? They're just reaching. Uh, maybe a, maybe you know maybe one of the other prophets that came back to life. Nobody knows who is this guy. That's what the crowds are saying. And then Jesus asks the question that's at the center of our faith. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I think it's good for us to reflect on that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Some people say he's a myth. He's not real. He's just made up. Who do you say that he is? Some people say he was a wise teacher. Maybe. Who turned into a legend? Some stories were embellished about him. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a man? Is he a myth? Is he a great guy they they embellished about? Was he a prophet? Did he speak for God? C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar. He's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Lord. It's got to be one of them. No matter your position, you have to have a position. So who is Jesus to you? You have to take a position on this because the question isn't, who does your pastor say that I am? Who does your dad say that I am? Who do your parents say that I am? Who who does your family say that I am? Who does your Sunday school teacher say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Really think about it. Go all the way back. Because I think the first thing that we find here. Is in following Jesus, you have to own it. So the the first one is own it. Own it. Because it's not up to your family, it's not your parents. When I was in college, I had to decide to reject my parents' faith, and I did. And what I came back to was my faith. I owned it. You have to own it. Whatever it is, whoever Jesus is to you, it's got to be yours. You can't just inherit your faith. You have to own it. It has to be yours. Who do you say that Jesus is. There is no saved by affiliation. Amen, Katie. Amen. But you have to own it. Your faith, that answer, it has to be yours. Peter gave us the answer. He is the Lord. But that has to come from you. It has to be your answer. Jesus told them, keep it quiet. Keep it on the down low. But that's not surprising. We know that Jesus was doing that. But part of what they weren't expecting was the reason. He said, Why keep it quiet? Because the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I need you guys to keep this quiet. He wanted them to be discreet about his identity. Uh, In the same way that a missionary who's overseas in a a closed country can't walk around saying, I'm a missionary, because they'll kick you out or they'll kill you. Jesus is the same. He's walking around, he's doing his ministry, but he's saying, you can't go telling people that I'm the Christ because I need more time. I have more people to reach with the message. So with death on his mind, he's thinking about who he is and what will happen. He's thinking that, you know, yes I am the Christ, but I'm going to be rejected and killed. I'll be raised, but this is not going to be a great moment for me. He's thinking about his death. And he turns around and we head into verses 23 and on, he turned around right after saying that, and now he's addressing everyone who's there. He's thinking about his death, and he says, and if anyone would come after me, so, yes, I'm the Christ, but I don't want you to tell people because it's going to lead to my death. And if anyone wants to come with me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, to be clear, to take up your cross is a call to die. There aren't other things that crosses are used for in the first century. Take up your cross means prepare to die. If you want to come with me, I'm headed to my death. And if you want to come with me, you have to deny yourself. You have to go by a gravestone. And then you can come with me. Here's what it looks like. If you, if you believe that I'm the Christ and you want to come with me, you have to deny yourself. That's what it means. Deny yourself. Reject your world. Reject what you want. Reject what's good for you and prepare yourself to die. And come with me. Verse 24 For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. See, Jesus knows he's going to die. It's part of the promise. There has to be, there has to be a payment for the sin of the world, for the brokenness of the world. If you have a a, a a glass painting that's been broken, you can't just push them back together and say, see, it's fixed. You have to go buy something, right, that's going to glue it back together. Jesus is the payment that allows the world to come back to God, that redeems the world from the brokenness Back to the good creation that God intended it to be in the first place. He knows he's going to die. It's part of the promise. And I wonder what he saw in the disciples' face when he told them that he would have to be rejected and killed and raised again on the third day. If you're truly following me, you have to be prepared to die too. And according to Jesus, this is what it looks like to follow him, to own your faith. If you own your faith, you have to follow him regardless of the consequences, even to your own death. Verse 24, look at verse 24, living for Jesus is a sacrificial life. It is not about what's good for you. You have to be willing to give up your life, not trying to preserve it. If you follow Jesus because of something like Pascal's Wager, have you heard of Pascal's Wager? It's this idea that, well, look, if if the whole Bible story is not true and you decide to confess faith in in, in Jesus and profess uh, him as your Lord, what did you lose? You didn't lose anything. Doesn't cost you anything. You walk up, walk up front one Sunday and go, Yeah, I want it. You know, maybe you get in the water, you get dunked. But all you did was get wet, because it didn't mean anything to you. Pascal's wager is the idea that if if the Bible's wrong, just do it because who cares? It's wrong. So but who cares? You didn't lose anything. If the Bible's right, you It's it's the most important thing you could ever do in your whole life, right? So why not just do it anyway? That's Pascal's wager. That's not faith. That's not faith. If you believe in Jesus because, well, hey, why not? It's It's worth a shot. Your faith is worthless to Jesus. Because to him, following him, is not about trying to preserve your life. It's about giving it up. It's about sacrifice. If Jesus is the eternal promise of God and the one path to forgiveness and salvation, you have to give up everything for him, and why wouldn't you? Verse 25 tells us, really, what else would you hold on to? What else is worth holding on to? If Jesus is the way that God is going to to forgive and make everything right again, What else is there? What else matters? And then he gets to the heart of the matter. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Guys, that's hard. In other words, if you're quiet about your love for Jesus now, he's going to be silent for you when you stand in front of God's judgment and you need him to say that you're forgiven. The big idea here is that you have to own it, but then if you truly own it, you have to show it. It has to come out. It has to be apparent in your life, all the way from confessing that Jesus is Lord. Okay, sure, but then what now? Jesus says, look, I'm going to have to die, and if you want to come with me, you're going to have to be prepared to die too. This is going to cost you everything. This is going to cost you everything. But is it worth it? And that, that is how you know if Jesus is Christ to you. Because he's worth everything. If he's not worth everything, if you're trying to hedge your bets, he's not Christ to you. He's not your Lord. It's a radical kind of showing your faith. This is the kind of this is the kind of show it that leads missionaries overseas to give up their life and to go pursue what Jesus has called them to do. It's the kind of show it that has for thousands of years and to this day led Christians to be martyred for their faith. It is the the Columbine shooter walking up to a student and saying, do you believe in Jesus? And when she says, yes, he killed her. It is not a small kind of showing your faith like a bumper sticker on your car. It is a go by your gravestone, And be prepared to lose everything, even your very life, for Jesus. That is hard. I don't care who you are. That's hard. It was hard for Jesus. You think it was easy for him to realize that he was gonna have to give up his life? No. No. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. This is Moses and Elijah. How did they know? They just knew. They just knew. They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from them, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's great that we're here. I am so glad that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Do you ever do that? You say something and you go like, yeah, I wasn't really sure what, what I was saying. I sort of walked into that conversation without thinking about it first. As he was saying these things, Again, not really knowing what he was saying. He's sleepy too. Forgive Peter. As he's saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So think of this fog coming down and encasing them. And they're scared. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. There are a thousand things to say about this passage. Let's try to keep it simple. Jesus, it seems he's a bit worked up about dying. Yes, I am the Christ, and I don't want you to tell people, don't broadcast it, because I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and I will be raised on the third day. And if you want to come with me, you have to deny yourself, you have to leave your whole world behind, you have to take up your cross, be prepared to die, and you have to follow me, knowing where I'm going. And eight days later, with I think this heavy on his heart, he's praying. And what does God do? God sends him some encouragement. He sends Moses and Elijah to what? What does it say? To talk to Jesus in verse 31 about his upcoming departure. Now, in Greek, it's the word exodus, his exit. His death, the reality is that no one could really help Jesus process through the reality of his coming death. We have the advantage of reading ahead and knowing that his disciples still really didn't get what was going on. His family wasn't supporting him. The the leaders of God's people at the time were calling Jesus evil. There's no one that Jesus can sit down with and go, guys, I don't know what to do about this thing. Nobody gets it. But God gets it. He hears Jesus' heart, and he sends this encouragement, Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't know what they said, but I imagine that Moses was explaining to him the reality of sin and the the penalty for sin And Elijah was explaining the the great promises of God and that Jesus is the bridge between the penalty for sin, the brokenness of the world, and the promises of God, and that he was going to be standing in the gap, providing a way for people who are broken in sin to give their life to him so that he can forgive them and then give them the promises of God. That's why Jesus had to die. And I imagine Moses and Elijah explaining that to Jesus, encouraging him. The important thing I think to remember about this is that Jesus had already said yes. Jesus had already agreed to this. When they confessed, when Peter confessed him as Christ, he said, yes, and I'm going to die for this. I'm going to be killed for this. It's not a question. Jesus is struggling with the reality, I think, of what that means, but he's already agreed to it. He's already said yes, and so he gets this encouragement from God. Meanwhile, Peter and James and John saw Jesus in his glory. It was an experience that both Peter and John wrote about later. They saw something that God normally keeps behind the veil, probably because we wouldn't understand it and probably also because it doesn't mean it would help our faith at all. I mean, case in point, look at Peter and James and John. They didn't see Jesus' glory and fall down and worship him. They saw Jesus in their glory and thought, let's make three tents. One for one for each of you. Now imagine God has, they know that he's the Christ. They know that Jesus is the Christ. And God in heaven is watching and he sent Moses and Elijah down to encourage Jesus and to speak with him about his death. God's lifted the veil. Peter and James and John can see Jesus in his glory. He's not, He's not the, the 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 fallen. Jesus is not sinful, but he's not in his in his unglorified form. He is he is like he is today. In fact, Peter writes about this event later in Second Peter one and calls this the Parousia, which is the second coming. He says that Jesus showed up on this mountain in his second coming body. Guys, when Jesus comes back, that's what Peter and James and John saw, was Jesus in the fullness of his glory. And they said, let's build three tents, one for each of you. And God said, you don't get it. That's my son. You listen to him. Moses and Elijah are dead people. But that, that's the Christ. That's the Messiah. You listen to him. When you realize who Jesus is, nothing else matters. If you really understand that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Lord, that he is your Lord, no matter what else you see, no matter how much glorious other things are going on around, he's the only thing that matters in that moment. Amen? In your life, Jesus is the only thing that matters. Anytime you find something else in your life that matters, you have to come back to that first step. Talk about who is Jesus to you. And then you have to own that. Is he the Christ to you in your life? Is he the answer to all your problems? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he the son of God? The only way for you to be forgiven, the only thing that can bring you anything that matters, is that him or is he one among many? As there are lots of things that matter in your life. He has to be the only thing. Who do you say that I am? So the process is, you have to own it, who Jesus is. It has to be part of who you are. You have to live it out. It has to come out publicly. You have to be proud of who that is, of who Jesus is for you. You can't be ashamed to say the name of Jesus Christ You have to own it, you have to show it, and then repeat. It's just like what the shampoo bottle says. You have to rinse, you lather, and then you repeat. Rinse and lather and repeat. It's the same thing with our faith. Because of the broken world that we live in, you have to appreciate that Jesus is the one thing that matters in your life. He's the one thing that matters in your life. Jesus said, if you're not willing to leave your father and mother and brother behind, you can't follow me. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me to your death, you can't follow me. Jesus is the one thing that matters. You have to come back to that all the time. And then you have to think about, how do I live that out? How do I show people that that's true in my life? And then when the world drags you down, when you start to get other things that matter, you have to come back to the beginning And ask that question Is Jesus still Christ? Is he still the Lord of my life? A couple things to think about, and then we'll wrap up. The first is Who is Jesus to you? Who is he in your heart, and who is he in your life? Because you might say, Well, in my heart, I know that Jesus is the Lord, but what if I look at your checkbook? What if I look at your calendar? What if I ask your friends? In your life is Jesus Christ. Is he the anointed one sent by God, the one who saves you from your sins, the one that matters in your life? Is he the Christ? In your heart, is he the one in your life? The cool thing, I think, is that in in what God said to Peter and James and John. I sort of feel bad for them because they're sleepy and what would you do if you saw Jesus in his glory? You probably wouldn't say the right thing either, would you, right? So I sort of sympathize with them. But the cool thing is that God spoke down to them and said, this is my son. And the way that I read that is like, you've got him with you all the time. Guys, the same thing is true of us. We can't be, we can't be marveled by, you know, Moses and Elijah when we have Jesus with us all the time. In His glory, guys, that's what He's like now. We're like Peter and James and John, except we don't see it with our eyes. But if you can't experience that with your heart, you're missing something. Jesus in His glory is with us today. He's the one who brought us together this morning. We invite him in when we gather together. We worship him when we sing. When we listen to his word, it's his voice that we hear in his glory, in his radiance, in his splendor. The concern I have is like Peter and James and John, I think maybe we just talk about it too much, that Jesus becomes something ordinary, May it never be. And that's something that I'm convicted about as I was looking at it this week. I know I'm guilty because I don't always think about or realize the real majesty and the glory of Christ who sits on his throne right now in heaven. If you could see Jesus now, if God pulled back the veil and showed you Jesus cloaked in glory, wearing majesty like a cape, bright and beautiful and pure and perfect and holy. And the only thing that you could see about him was just that he's holy, that there is nothing blemishing about him, that there is nothing sinful about him, that he is perfect in perfection, that he's absolutely holy. If you could see His glory. You know what else you would see? You would see the scars in his hands. You would see the scars in his feet. And you would know how much he loves you. I think we would pray differently. I think when we started to pray, if we said, Lord Jesus, we wouldn't just say it like we're introducing a letter. I think we would pray differently. I think we would worship differently. I think we would sing differently. I think we would treat each other differently if we understood that we were in the presence of a holy God. Sometimes I cry when I pray, sometimes I cry when I preach. I think we would be holy, weeping messes if we could really see what's happening right now, the way that God sees it. This week, understand and hear God say to you, that Jesus is the Christ, listen to him. He's with you all the time. You just need to listen to him. Let's go to him in prayer.